The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to this week's episode of Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know, but doesn't have time to tell you. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest research updates to tricks on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. How are you, Lindsay? I'm good. Welcome back to another episode. Yeah, it's good to be back. I think um, this week should be a good one. We have had some audience requests for a few other topics and we're going to get to them but we probably will try to bring in some specialists for a few of those so this will be uh, something different. Yeah we were going to talk about a common uh, symptom that presents to the primary care office and that is dizziness. Absolutely dizziness is something that we see you know really spanning the age ranges um, probably more common in the elderly but something that we see frequently in clinic. And so um, very likely at some point in your life, you're going to experience some kind of dizziness. And, you know, hopefully you don't experience any prolonged dizziness, but it's something that happens too. So we're going to talk about the different types of dizziness, how they present, what to look for, uh, what might be red flags that we should worry about in dizziness, and then what can you do about it? Right. So I think the first thing is kind of distinguishing what what do you mean by n- dizziness? Because I think it means different things to different people. Yeah. So how do you how do you sort that out, Lindsay? When someone comes into clinic and says, "I'm dizzy," what do you what do you ask them? What are you looking for? I ask them if they mean um, that the room is spinning or they're spinning in the room. Or sometimes it's a, I'm moving when I'm not moving, a sensation of moving when I'm not moving versus a feeling of lightheadedness, like I could pass out um, versus my balance is off or I feel like I could fall type of sensation. Absolutely. Yeah. So several different ways that people can experience what we describe as uh, as dizziness. Um and it really, sometimes the way they present can help us determine what's causing it, but sometimes there's some overlap between the different presentations as well. So what would you like to start with, Lindsay? Should we talk about vertigo initially? Yeah, I think that'd be a good place to start. All right. So vertigo is kind of that sensation of false movement. So either someone is moving when they're not or the environment is moving when it's not. And so sometimes people notice a spinning or whirling sensation. Um, A lot of times it comes along with nausea, vomiting, and even fatigue. What do you think about when somebody comes in with these symptoms? And again, is there any way you really separate this out from the other presentations of dizziness? I think so. I think it's a lot by what they're describing. And certainly if this is a kind of acute sudden onset, um, we ask about that. We ask um, how long does it last? What brings it on? So is it when I lay down and roll over in bed, does it come on with that um, motion? Uh, last 30 seconds, less or more? Um, those are kind of the important questions for getting into vertigo. I think because of the acuteness if uh, and the if you're an older age um, and have some risk factors for stroke we kind of have to do some things to rule that out 
Um, so I don't know. Are there other things that you ask to try to figure out if this is an acute stroke? Yeah, I would say, you know, some, like you mentioned, the timing. So if somebody says it occurs, you know, when I turn my head or I roll over, it lasts for 30 seconds to two minutes. It's pretty brief. And then it goes completely away. That makes me a little less concerned about stroke. And I think more about what we call benign uh, positional vertigo, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, BPPV. And that's just kind of a recurrent, short-lived vertigo. Yeah, and I think I was reading that probably 10% of the population will have the BPPV at least once in their lifetime. Uh, It does occur more often the older we get, though, it looks like, or it can be... um, even part of a migraine uh, makes, if you have migraines, you might be more um, likely to have this in the future. And also with kind of head trauma at a younger age, uh, it's more likely to happen. And and what's happening when that, what kind of is the tr- uh, physiological thing that's happening when that goes on? Yeah, so before I jump into that, I was just going to say some other triggers for BPPV episodes would be sometimes even like, Um, lying back at the dentist's office or at a hair salon or being in bed rest for a long time, those can trigger those BPPV episodes. Um, And so what's happening in in BPPV is, um, well, it's kind of, it's a fun one to explain. So we have, our bodies have little semicircular canals, they're called, in our inner ear. And these have little, little calcium stones in them and the stones are positioned in a particular way to help uh, tell our brain what position our body is oriented in in space and so once in a while the stones will kind of get tipped over in the gel matrix that they sit in and that creates a dizzy sensation or vertigo sensation and so there are you know because because it's a very specific cause of bppv we can actually do some maneuvers in the clinic to try to try to induce symptoms and verify that diagnosis Um, again it's fairly common certainly more common as we get older but like like we said there can be triggers that bring it on as well and i think uh, the easiest thing to do for that is you can learn maneuvers there so the the maneuver to um verify if this is what's going on is called Dick's Hall Pike that we can do in the office. And that's basically, um, you know, you kind of quickly lay someone back with their head extended over the um, exam bench, or I do it over a pillow and then turn your head to the side. And if your eyes kind of um, move back and forth when we do that, that's a positive sign. That's called nystagmus. And um if that happens, then we can send you actually to physical therapists who do um, vestibular rehab is what we call it. And they basically do things like the Epley maneuver, which you can find on YouTube as well to see how you do that. And that's basically laying on one side and rolling to the other, depending on which of these monoliths or crystals in your ear um, semicircular canals are out of place and get them back in place. And the symptoms are resolved very quickly. So the first thing I generally do is try to get somebody into physical therapy. Are there other things we can do to help with the symptoms? Yeah, so I think physical therapy is very beneficial for people with BPPV. Um, I would say the vast majority of the time it does respond to that. You can use the -the over-the-counter, there's over-the-counter meclizine or or medicines for motion sickness um, that people sometimes use. 
there's benefits and risks to that. So I would definitely talk with your physician before taking those. Um, Meclizine is one of those type of medications. So what about the another really common one that we see in the clinic is called Meniere's disease. And what do you what do you expect people to come in with when they have Meniere's? Yeah, so they typically come in with those same type of vertigo symptoms. So it's it's acute onset with turning and the room is spinning or they feel like they're spinning in the room or they have some sort of motion when they're not moving type of symptom. But it come, goes along with hearing loss and tinnitus or ringing in the ears and often a feeling of fullness in your ears. Yeah, and it's it's not... So positional. So in general, I would say people will have it lasting, you know, um, hours up to a day, not days, but um, for several hours without necessarily getting better. Right. And can also have some fullness in their ear. Um, And so, yeah, that's fairly common as well. You know, once people have had episodes of either of these, I would say they're more likely to have a recurrence as well. So a lot of times people come in and they, they kind of know what's going on because they've had this in the past. Right. And so are, there's a few different treatments for Meniere's disease. Um, what is the most common thing that you do to help? Yeah. So, you know, we can use um, antihistamines. Sometimes diuretics are beneficial. And then again, those anti-nausea or anti-motion sickness medications can be helpful as well. Um, for people who have, you know, frequent symptoms, of Meniere's disease, then keeping them on a diuretic can help prevent episodes and prevent recurrence. I would add to just that, you know, with Meniere's disease, vestibular and balanced rehab therapy can also be helpful and important. So, um, you know, it's usually not quite as dramatic a response as what we see with BPPV, where people do respond fairly quickly, but it can certainly help as well. Yeah. Um, something else that's similar, um, to both of these that um, we might just want to touch on would be like a labyrinthitis or a, a neuritis. Absolutely, yeah. So can you explain what those terms mean, Lindsay? That's just an uh, inflammation of those semicircular canals or the nerve that um, innervates them. Yeah, the nerve that is providing the signals from those canals to the brain. And so that can happen in the setting of shingles. Sometimes that's, we call that Ramsey-Hunt syndrome when people have shingles affecting that cranial nerve um, or just with viral infections uh, or other inflammatory um, conditions. And sometimes we don't know why. But yes, very similar presentation. Um, Labyrinthitis will often have hearing loss along with it. And... um, shingles may have a rash again depending on the distribution of what's affected by the shingles and that often we just kind of um, have to wait it out till it runs its course sometimes we might you know if it's shingles related we might do the acyclovir or antiviral medications um, sometimes steroids um, but usually you just kind of have to wait till it runs its course so Lindsay, do you ever see vertigo caused by medications or related to medications? I would say not vertigo necessarily related to medications, but a symptom of dizziness, certainly. Yeah, I would I, I would say um, for sure dizziness, but I have had patients come in with atypical presentations that sound more like vertigo when they describe their symptoms. And, you know, so initially we go down that vertigo pathway and ultimately find out it was related to medications. Um, after we make some changes. So I don't have 
any particular medications in mind that I think about with vertigo, but just we keep that in mind as something else that may contribute to sort of similar symptoms. And sometimes it really is hard to distinguish between true vertigo and just dizziness or lightheadedness. Right. And I think uh, certainly medications are always something in the back of your mind for most symptoms that we have as a cause. Absolutely. And then before we move away from vertigo, just um, something that we like, that we physicians think about because we don't want to miss it would be what we call central vertigo. And Lindsay, you mentioned, you know, dizziness or vertigo sometimes being related to stroke. So what do you think about with central vertigo in terms of presentation and what we need to be looking for there? You can have similar symptoms. It's an acute onset. Um, It's different in that it's not something that comes and goes um, in the matter of seconds. I think you would see some other things along with it. Um, Weakness or imbalance um, would be included. There's some things on exam that we can do to tell the difference. Um, Certainly, you know, we'd be more concerned if you had risk factors for strokes, which would be like high blood pressure and diabetes, high cholesterol. Atrial fibrillation. Right. Yeah, so that's something that your clinician should be thinking about too if you're presenting with vertigo. It's certainly less common, and again, uh, there are specific things that we look for on exam that would be suggestive of a central vertigo, potentially related to stroke or other central process. Right. So another, I guess... Dizziness. We get people coming in with dizziness, and it when we talk to them further, they kind of mean a lightheaded or like a pre-syncopal, I could pass out type of symptom. Um, and so what kinds of things do we we ask and, and look for for this kind of symptom? Yeah, exactly. And so for, for this one, I think timing is important. So if they say, you know, every time I climb up the stairs, I start to feel a little dizzy and lightheaded or like I could pass out or when I'm active, I feel that way. Um, Also looking for other potential associated symptoms. So feeling warm or feeling like they're going to pass out, maybe feeling uh, heart palpitations, things like that. All of those would be what we consider pre-syncope. And the list of causes of this is quite different from vertigo. So um, a pre-syncope can be caused by heart problems. So it can be cardiac in, in nature and That can be from, you know, tight valves like severe aortic stenosis, can come from arrhythmias where the heart is not pumping adequately. I think a big one in my patient population is um, what we call orthostatic hypotension. So just low blood pressure from stand. So it kind of when they stand up too fast, they talk about um, the symptoms coming on. Um, maybe we're over medicating and so they're hypotensive because we're giving them too much uh, blood pressure medication. That can be seen in patients with uh, people with Parkinson's disease and autonomic insufficiency, we call it. Um, if you're simply dehydrated and not drinking enough water, which is a big one, people often don't drink enough water. Um, and sometimes I see people have kind of similar 
complaints of kind of a vague dizziness um, and when we are getting down to it it's often because they're skipping meals and they get that when they're you know they're hungry and that's a symptom that they haven't eaten enough that day. Yeah absolutely lots of different potential causes of presyncope and again depending on kind of the associated symptoms that helps guide us in terms of what we're thinking about for cause. So for treatment Lindsay for presyncope I, I mean it really depends on what you know, what the cause is. Um, obviously, like you said, if it's a low blood pressure issue, we can look at medications and making adjustments. Very commonly, like you said, it's inadequate water intake, and so then people need to just consume more water. Um, if it's cardiac, that needs further testing and evaluation. And, you know, again, for Parkinson's disease, um, treating the underlying condition can certainly help, although it doesn't completely eliminate those symptoms. Yeah, I think oftentimes um, if if people are having kind of the orthostatic where if they stand up too fast, it's good to do compression stockings um, on during the day because that can help with the flow of fluid um, and blood when you're standing up, get things moving. I always tell people to kind of exercise, do ankle circles or pump their legs before they stand up so that they get the blood moving because... Um, you can see that a lot in people who have kind of venous insufficiency or as you get older, our blood just doesn't, blood pressure doesn't respond so well to, to the changes in um, positions. Yeah, I t- you know, like you said, kind of just telling people too to take a little more time when they stand up before they start walking because usually that presyncope doesn't happen instantly when they, when they stand. It happens, you know, as they start to move, then they start to feel dizzy. And so taking a minute, making sure they have their balance and that their blood pressure has equilibrated can be very helpful. Yeah. And then if it's associated with kind of racing heart or chest pain or the diaphoresis or breaking into a sweat, and then I think you need to bring that to your your doctor's attention and and a more of a cardiac workup with, you know, maybe an EKG and an echo picture of your heart to sometimes a halter monitor as necessary if it comes and goes to check for arrhythmias. Yeah, yeah, sometimes a two-week or four-week monitor depending on the frequency of symptoms. into uh, disequilibrium. Yeah, and this one, it's really how people struggle to sometimes to figure out or to be able to describe this. Um, I think it's harder to kind of distinguish for people when they're talking to them and trying to figure out this symptom. It really is. It's so, it's it's fairly nonspecific in terms of what it is. So let's let's just kind of describe what exactly is disequilibrium first and then we can kind of dive into what people might be experiencing oh i think it's a feeling of imbalance or often people will say i'm walking like i'm drunk or something they describe it as that sometimes so i think it's just often it's caused by you know a peripheral neuropathy or nerve and sensation in our feet And so it's kind of our body, our head not knowing where our body is in space. Yeah, balance balance is kind of the product of several different inputs coming in. And, you know, our nerves from our feet is certainly an important one. Um, Nerves in our legs, you know, people who've had knee replacement lose some of that sense of where are my knees in space, and that can really affect balance. Um, Balance is also visual and auditory, and so changes in vision, changes in hearing can all contribute to disequilibrium. So as people get older, the chances of disequilibrium really do increase as they start to experience deficits in different systems. Right, and so um, 
we you know there are certainly things we can do on exam to to check this out sometimes it's can you feel you know we do the monofilament test to see if you can feel fine touch in your toes or we do the um vibration sense with the tuning fork um and when can you feel the vibration stop and that's um some easy in the office ways we can tell if you have uh diminished peripheral nerve sensation Absolutely. Yep. And then things like gait speed testing, um, even looking at how quickly people get up out of a chair can kind of be signs too of muscle weakness or atrophy that might contribute to this. And sometimes it's a, a Rongberg test where we just ask you to stand with your eyes open and then close. And do you sway when you close your eyes? That can be um, an example of disequilibrium or imbalance contributing to that sensation. So what's the, what's the treatment? Obviously, this one, again, is more common with age. Lindsay, you, you actually run a balance and fall stability clinic. And so what are you looking for and how are you helping people to reduce falls and help regain some balance? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is um, often we see a kind of deficient B12 deficiency or thyroid we want to rule out for causing those things. Most often I would say it has to do with diabetes and the peripheral neuropathy because of diabetes and so we want to make sure we've diagnosed and are treating that and for our listeners what what how does b12 or how do thyroid contribute to balance so b12 is important for your nerve health uh, and so that's how it helps with balance and so um, it can contribute to the peripheral neuropathy or dying back of the nerves um, to the feet for the thyroid, is kind of a complex um, situation, so I, I think it's just important to rule it out because we need to treat it if it was um, low or high, right, to contribute to your balance issues. Um, a big component is medications that are making things worse. So there's a lot of medications we can give people that make balance worse. Um, probably the biggest culprit is found over-the-counter and very easily accessed and commonly used and that would be um, Benadryl or diphenhydramine. So any kind of over-the-counter um, PM medications or uh, the first-generation allergy medications um, like the Benadryl diphenhydramine can really affect our balance. And so certainly we would look at your medications that you're on to help. Uh, and the, the best thing when we do all those things to treat is to practice, to practice strength and to practice balance because um, we can't generally reverse what has happened. So we have to learn how to cope and live with it. And so I think you have to then have better strength and flexibility and agility to try to overcome that. Absolutely. I think that that is the key. I would add, you know, if you have hearing loss or need visual cor- vision correction, then those things are also important because they they do help. So making sure that your eye exam is up to date and if you if you need to wear hearing aids and wearing hearing aids, all of those things aid in balance. Although I think probably the most important is that strength training and agility training. Yeah, and sometimes I think what we do often in the balance and stability clinic is um if people are using the trifocals or bifocals, it's often helpful to go back to the monocular vision glasses and switch back and forth because it just becomes an added thing for your brain to have to process um, 
where to look in the glasses and what they're supposed to be, your eyes and your brain are supposed to be seeing when they're looking through the various parts. Um, so it's, it's better if you're going on a walk and you have peripheral neuropathy to have monocular vision glasses for your distance. Yeah, that's a great thought. Well, I think the other one that we could talk about, which is just kind of a catch-all term for other nonspecific dizziness, is called persistent postural perceptual dizziness. So it's three P's and a D, P-P-P-D, because we need more acronyms. <laughs> and this is basically dizziness that is persistent it's non-vertiginous, so not that spinning uh, or movement sensation. Dizziness or imbalance that worsens with motion or being upright. Um, and basically, symptoms have to be present on most days for at least three months. So it's not something that just came on. Um, often, though, it is preceded by another type of vestibular process like BPPV or neuronitis um, or even stroke. And so... This is one that uh, tends to be, you know, more persistent and probably more challenging to get rid of too. Right. And about about three-fourths of patients with this have associated anxiety and or depression. Um, not necessarily causative, but likely not helping with the management of symptoms. And so often treatment will include tr uh, medications that help with depression and anxiety like SSRIs, um, and then that vestibular balance rehab. Right. And again, with all dizziness, I think taking a very close look at the medications is really important too. I agree. The medications are often culprits, and so uh, we always got to keep that in mind. And generally, when you're starting a new medication, if you experience dizziness when you first started, and note that if it's mild, that will generally go away after a couple of weeks of taking that medication. So if it's not too distressing, it's something I would try to push through for a couple of weeks before giving up on the medication. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. But if it's causing falls and really, you know, significant imbalance, then it's time to have a conversation with your clinician about making a change. Well, good. Yeah. Anything else you can think of, Lindsay, for balance, dizziness? That's kind of the... The main things I go through when I see somebody with dizziness for the first time. Very rarely, right, do you need imaging like an MRI of the brain. Um, that doesn't happen too often. That occurs when we have abnormal exam findings and we're concerned about a central vertigo process. So Lindsay, let's talk about our health pearl for today. Yeah, I think we just wanted to touch a little bit on um, the COVID infection and specifically if you've received your vaccine, what are kind of our thoughts uh, and thoughts of the medical profession on, on what that means for, for activities and, and how can you open your world? Um, so I don't know, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Good question and good thought. So I think, um, you know, certainly... It's a breath of fresh air to get the vaccines and feel like, okay, you can you can do a little more now and have a little more human contact, which I think we all need by now. Um, so, you know, right now the CDC is saying if you're if you've been fully vaccinated, which means if it's a two dose vaccine, you're two weeks past your second dose or if it's a one dose vaccine, you're two weeks beyond that dose. Um, and somebody else is fully vaccinated. It is safe to be to get together with that person. 
um, safe to be unmasked when you've both been vaccinated. I think, you know, if you're around bigger groups of people, we're still recommending masking or groups of people where you're not certain if everybody has been vaccinated, then certainly continuing to mask is a good idea. Um, you know, the vaccines are wonderful and they're really going to help. They do not prevent every case of COVID. What they do is they prevent serious illness and death from COVID, but they, they don't prevent every case. And so it's important to, while we can start to expand our world a little bit, still important to uh, you know not throw caution to the wind. What are you telling patients, Lindsay? Yeah, basically that, but I think um, for the population, I see the biggest thing is they've been so isolated um, that this is your opportunity to, you know, two weeks after you've gotten that vaccine to open your world. Um, I think, yes, you have to do it cautiously, but um, I think it means you can see your grandkids. Your grandkids probably are not vaccinated, right? But as long as they don't have symptoms, um, then I would mask up and see your grandkids. Um, so I think, I think I would open up your world um, I would say, you know, if their restaurants are open, that you could probably go as long as it's not fully crowded and they're kind of um, practicing some social distancing in the building. Could you go to a restaurant and and eat after you're vaccinated? I think that would probably be okay as long as you're, um, you know, they're taking the precautions that they need to in the restaurant. Yep, exactly, exactly. I think it, it definitely does give one a little bit more freedom to feel like, yes, you need to run in a store for something. Um, you know, you, you should be fairly well protected. Again, I would still follow precautions with distancing when you're not, you know, if you're not around close friends and around people you know are vaccinated, still distance when you can, still wash your hands, try not to touch your face. All of those things that we've been doing and saying for the last year, we should continue doing that. But um, it's it's okay to start you know, having small gatherings too. Right. And I think if if you still have risk factors um, of, you know, obesity or diabetes or heart disease, you probably have to be more on the careful side than somebody who is completely healthy without those risk factors and vaccinated, right? So I think you have to take those things into account as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I um, am going to go on an airplane for the first time since the um, pandemic. And so I feel like uh, my family, uh, my husband and I have been vaccinated and we're going to take my kids uh, on a short plane ride to Colorado to visit my parents who have been vaccinated. And, um, you know, we'll mask up on the plane and I will probably wipe things down and certainly be using um, hand sanitizer, but um, I feel like uh, the benefits to my family and my parents' health uh, far outweigh the risks at this point. Absolutely, yep, yeah. and that's that's what we need to look at with this picture is where are the benefits, where are the risks, and what's the balance? And I think mental health has to be considered right now, and you know, people have been isolated for a long time, so um, if you can safely have small gatherings or get together with your grandkids, it's it's a good thing to do once you've been vaccinated. Right. Great. Well, thanks for listening today. Yeah, we appreciate you listening and uh, we hope that you can um, follow us on any um, platform that supports podcasts. 
Yeah, if you have additional uh, requests for episodes or qu- follow-up questions from today's episode, you can email us. We're at mail at everythingdoc.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Right, so please, please follow, please comment, please uh, write in for your uh, requests of what you want us to talk about. Yeah, and we'll be back hopefully in the next few weeks here with some more good episodes. So thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.